Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And at 10.30, we'll invite you to call up and have your say on anything we've talked about or not talked about. Okay, John, you've got a few itches to get rid of? Yeah, I was going to start off following up really on there last week about Samsung. And... um, this has actually come from the International Trade Union Confederation. Uh, Samsung's very bad record on labour rights. Quality assurances by Samsung in the wake of the slow and chaotic recall of the Galaxy Note 7 failed to address the company's record on labour rights and working conditions, which are at the root of the product safety problem. Uh, now, the ITUC General Secretary, that's Sharon Burrow, so she used to be the head of the ACTU, Sharon Burrow. Complete waste of space there, too. She said this, As sure as night follows day, our culture of repression against the collective voice for Samsung employees has led to the disastrous quality failures at the company. When the workforce is afraid to speak out about real problems on the production line, because of an arrogant and domineering management culture, workers and consumers alike face risks to their health and safety. Samsung's priorities are all wrong. Initially, they tried to minimise the problem and avoid the consequences, and they still show no signs of recognising the human and financial cost of the way they treat employees. Now, Sharon's uh, heart might be in the right place, and it's certainly a good cause, and we certainly support it. But to suggest that all that needs changing is an arrogant and domineering management culture, it's hardly enough, I don't think. (laughs) I mean, Samsung is a huge multinational company. It's one of the biggest in the world. It's not the biggest. They didn't become this big without having a strict and exploitative business plan designed to maximize profits above all else. Many other companies look to Samsung as a model. If Samsung can win the present battle they are in, these others will want to follow suit. Aside from the immediate issues, that's why Samsung needs to be shown. In the long term, the desire for ever greater profits will always ensure employers will do anything they can get away with, regardless of how this impacts on workers. It's really naive to uh, think that they won't. As well as poor health and safety, Samsung also has a history of union busting, especially in the Philippines. This is highly surprising. Ultimately, only an end to capitalist economics will lead to an end of these exploitative practices. It needs an awful lot more than just a change in management culture. <clears throat> For the moment, though, the International Trade Union uh, what's it? Confederation, International Trade Union Confederation, that's ITUC, are calling on Samsung to, one, respect workers' rights to form and join a trade union by ending its anti-union policy and reinstating workers dismissed for building a union. Two, take responsibility for its hidden workforce of 1.5 million workers, including safe and secure jobs, a minimum living wage, collective bargaining rights, and a proper grievance procedure. And three, end the culture of fear, which stops workers speaking out about workplace practices. So there is an online petition, and there's a fairly long... um, there's a fairly long address here, which I'll read out. HTTP double dot double forward slash ACT dot Samsung exposed dot org. 
Or, if you want to make it simple, you can simply go to ITUC. If you Google an ITUC, then you'll get to the uh, online petition. There's another way of getting there. Have you heard of Sputnik News? Uh, Russian, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Russian, is it? Yeah. I think, actually, they're not even pretending they're not Russian. No, no, <laughs> no. They're not just a front for uh, the voice of Moscow. But Sputnik News, uh, they also have that petition. So, hey, they're doing something right. Oh, Russian television is actually not too <clears throat> bad. RT. Yeah, it's mm. a, yeah, not nearly right. as bad as you would expect. Oh, no, no, I've, I've it's seen It's more that, intelligent yeah. than American TV. YouTube, really? Mm. Mm. As good as that, eh? <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, there's only a few days left before the US presidential election and the polls are predictably starting to tighten. They tend to do that. As do you po- believe them? Well, they tend to, polls tend to do, that's why I know I don't believe polls, I've already explained to you, mm-hmm. I don't believe polls, uh, I believe the TAB, and the TAB after the second debate had Trump at six bucks, mm. which is pretty long, he's now, yesterday I checked, he's now $2.90. Right. So this is, I mean, this is a realistic uh, prediction, because they will actually give you money. If you put a buck on yeah, that. Yeah, they're putting their money with their mouth. Exactly, not unlike the opinion polls. But anyway, the opinion polls are predictably starting to tighten. I mean, they tend to do that as foregone conclusions aren't very interesting in any contest. But also, there is a, there's a reason why they're... Uh, well, you know, why that Trump is coming in. The FBI's director, James Comey, has decided to reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails... Apparently, 650 emails are to be probed, uh, which does seem to be a very, very big number. I thought I sent a lot of emails. Contrary to what Donald Trump suggests, Clinton hasn't actually sent that number personally. I don't really know if that would be possible. Leaks within the FBI and the Justice Department have shown that there's conflict within these two agencies as to what to do about Clinton's emails. But it's not just the emails. There are also calls for a separate probe into allegations of corruption involving the multi-billion dollar Clinton Federation, which is run by Hillary and the former president, Bill Clinton. Justice Department officials have stated their opposition to the reopening of the investigation so close to the November 8th election date. And the Democrat side of politics has accused, get this, they've accused James Comey, who is a former Republican, of political interference to assist Trump to become the president. Now, these are the people, right? I've got a good quote here. These are the people that only last week they were rubbishing Trump for daring to suggest that the election might be rig- rigged. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, well, of course they're like, in the rigged mm-hmm. elections. Mm-hmm. I mean, every you know, 1960, possibly, 2000, yeah, yeah. definitely, whatever. And we can go through a whole lot of examples of how the elections were rigged. The Democrats were rubbish in that. They were saying all these elections, including uh, even Joseph Biden, the U.S. vice president, was saying, no, no, all these elections are scrupulously clean uh, as a whistle. And and it even went back to the civil war, they said. Well, this week, the former Democrat strategist, and he's now a media commentator, James Corville, quite well-known fella, he's on MSNBC, he says, this is, in effect, an attempt to hijack an election. It's unprecedented. The House Republicans and the KGB are trying to influence our democracy. Oh, you got to <laughs> hate those Russians, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> there is no KGB. There hasn't been for over 20 years. No, it's no. now the FSB. But still, the FBI and the KGB slash FSB working together yeah, to rig yes, an election. Yes, it's pretty likely. 
So, yeah, it's worth noting. These are the same people who just a week ago were ridiculing the suggestion by Trump that the election could be rigged. Um, it's like a game of football, really. All's fair if a decision goes your way, but if it favours the other guy, it must be rigged. And Trump says that. He says he'll recognise it as long as he wins. At least he's honest. Trump has swung from criticism of the FBI to before this uh, op- reopening of the investigation into supporting them for the latest working on, and he's uh, all for law and order. So he says, The Republicans and Democrats represent two factions of the same ruling class. Their campaigns have both largely uh, ignored policies and instead focused on the possibility of illegal and or immoral activities by the other side. Instead of looking at Clinton's webs of pri- web of private emails, possibly including classified materials, the Democrats would prefer the FBI investigate close ties between Trump and the Russian government. As in days of old, Russia is once again viewed by many in the American establishment as a foreign interest hostile to the U.S. This election is no doubt great entertainment, even more so than the usual razzmatazz, but it makes a mockery of any genuine democratic process. Neither of these two parties offer real policies to address the real concerns of working people. Instead of opposition to war, social inequality, attacks on democratic rights, and I could go on, we're getting mudslinging and scandal-mongering. On one side, Trump supporters are encouraged to shout out Lock her up, lock her up, in reference to Clinton. On Clinton's side, supposed misogyny is raked up from the past to demonise Trump. And this week, they're really scraping the barrel this week. The liberal media, especially in this country, it's incredible too. It's like 95% of the media's dreadful coverage of the US Mm. elections. They've also claimed to have uncovered a new scandal. A new scandal. Well, it goes back to 2011, but, you know, it's it's nicely timed here. In 2011, while Trump was in Australia, he is reckoned to have practically assaulted the model Jennifer Hawken. I don't know much about her. This was at an event featuring the Miss... She was a Miss Universe, which was seen live. This event was seen live by thousands and broadcast to millions. Even Jennifer Hawken herself has had nothing bad to say about Trump, but that matters little. The narrative continues to be Trump the misogynist versus Clinton the criminal. I'm not saying that they're not those things. Mad versus <laughs> bad. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> Despite the fact that throughout his career, Trump has been an enemy of workers, there are now many workers who are supporting him largely because they feel so betrayed by the policies of the Democrats and so betrayed by the nature of American economics, especially since the uh, 2007 global fin- American financial crisis that became global, which is now nearly 10 years ago. For a brief moment, there was hope raised in the form of Bernie Sanders, who at least spoke of class issues for a few months. It seems a long time ago now. Mm. But the machinations of the Democrat Party ended his run, and he was brought back into line by the Obama-Clinton camp. Sanders was even offered the leadership of the Greens Party, but he predictably chose to toe the party, the Democrat Party, line. Now, the arguments for him doing so, and arguments put up for uh, putting in Clinton, are the usual arguments uh, trotted out by liberals and social democrats at this time. She's the lesser of two evils, small change is better than no change, and it's better the devil you know. We've had hundred years of the reformist agenda. Surely it must be obvious to anyone who's really paying attention that the real job of the reformist is to prevent a shake-up of the whole system, a shake-up which could lead to the working class taking power for ourselves. Now, about Michael Moore, 
The documentary filmmaker Michael Moore, he sometimes lets his image get in the way, but he has done some good work in exposing the inherent inequality, corruption and sheer evil of uh, rampant US capitalism. Now, Michael Moore, in a space of months, has gone from green to Sanders to Clinton... (laughs) And now he's speaking out very favourably about Trump. Is he right? So, yeah. And yes, he does have... He's a, a man who can't lose. Yes, he, he does have... A, no, he can't use money. He does have a documentary coming out. I was guessing at that, but apparently it's true. Mm. Would you believe? Okay. So far, this uh, campaign, yeah, he's, all, he's Bernie and it's Hillary. Now he can sit before an audience of working-class people in American towns crippled by economic collapse. This is serious. Mm. And he can advocate a vote for Donald Trump. He doesn't get booed off stage. Not because Trump is any way the right candidate, but just as an expression of anger at the rule of Wall Street over Main Street and the liberal agenda taking precedence over the concerns of the actual working class. Mm. These people are often vilified because they dare to get angry. I'd say they have a right to get angry. I would say so too. And they have a right to demand a fairer share of the cake. And if that leads to actually voting for Trump, or more like voting against Clinton, well, it stinks. But I think it's very understandable. Yes, and, and lastly, uh, John, in the two minutes you've got left, who do you support? Who do you think is going to win? Who do I think is going to win? Well, Clinton's the favourite, but we've had a year of underdogs, and we had one yesterday with the Chicago Cubs. What? Which you know nothing about. Of course I do. I do, uh, I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, I could, I could go through the sporting victories no, uh, you know, for the underdogs. <laughs> I could bring up the Brexit. So, yeah, I think, I, know, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think it's possible, Trump. Right, OK, OK. Well, I wanted to take, um, and I'm basing this on an article by John Pilger, which is very good, but it's about the massive propaganda effort being waged by the the, the mainstream media on us. And uh, we've never known propagandists to so insinuate every pore in our lives and to go unchallenged. Let's start with, imagine two cities. Both are under sieges by the force of the government of that particular country. Both cities are occupied by fanatics who commit terrible atrocities like beheading people. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference. In one, the government soldiers are described as liberators by the Western press Mm -hmm. who report their battles and airstrikes. There's front pictures of these heroic soldiers giving the V sign for victory and there's no mention of civilian casualties. Iraq. Iraq. In the second city, in a country nearby, almost exactly the same is happening. Government forces are laying siege to a city controlled by the same breed of fanatics as in the Iraq one. The difference is that the first city, these fanatics are supported and supplied by us, the Uh United States and Britain. They even have a media centre that's funded by Britain and America. Another difference is that the, the, the government soldiers laying siege to the city in Syria are Russian and are therefore bad guys, condemned for assaulting and bombing the city, which is exactly what the good soldiers are doing in Iraq against Mosul. Confusing? Obviously, I'm referring to the current siege of the city of Mosul by the government forces of Iraq, backed by the US and Britain, and also to the siege of Aleppo by the government forces of Syria backed by Russia. Now, get this straight. One is good, the other is bad. Mm. What is seldom reported is that both cities would not be occupied by fanatics and ravaged by war if Britain and the US hadn't invaded Iraq in 2003. 
This criminal enterprise was launched on lies very similar to the propaganda you're getting now about the civil war in Syria. Without this drumbeat of propaganda dressed up as news, the monstrous ISIS and al-Qaeda and al-Nusra and the rest of the jihadist gang might not even exist. And the people of Syria might not be fighting for their lives today. You may remember in 2003 a succession of BBC reporters turning to the camera and telling us that Blair was vindicated for what turned out to be the crime of the century. Likewise in Australia, Howard and Bush in America. The US television networks produced the same validation for George Bush. Fox News brought on Henry Kissinger, one of the major criminals of the 20th century, to infuse over Colin Powell's fabrications. Charles Lewis, the renowned American investigative journal, was asked what would happen if the freest media in the world had seriously challenged to be turned to challenge what turned out to be crude propaganda. He replied that if journalists had done their job, there would be a very good chance we would not have gone to war in Iraq. In other words, had journalists done their job, had they challenged and investigated the propaganda instead of simply repeating it, Hundreds of thousands of men, women and children would be alive today. There would be no IS and no siege of Aleppo or Mosul. There would have been no atrocity on the London Underground on the 7th of July 2005. When the terrorist atrocity happened in Paris last year, President Francois Hollande immediately sent planes to bomb Syria and more terrorism following. Predictably, the product of Holland's bombast about France being at war and showing no mercy. The attack on Iraq, the attack on Libya, the attack on Syria happened because the leaders in each of these countries was not a puppet of the West. The human rights of a Saddam or a Gaddafi is irrelevant. Mm. Just ask the Saudis. Mm. They did not obey orders, that is, Saddam and Gaddafi, and they weren't prepared to surrender control of their country. As Wikileaks has revealed, it's only when the Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad in 2009 rejected an oil pipeline running through his country from Qatar to Europe that he was attacked. From that moment on, the CIA began to plan to destroy the government of Syria with jihadist fanatics, the same fanatics currently holding the people of Mosul and eastern Aleppo uh, hostage. Why isn't this news? The British Foreign Officer official Khan Ross, who was responsible for operating sanctions against Iraq, told John Pilger, quote, We would feed journalists factoids of sanitised intelligence or we would freeze them out. That's how it worked. The West's medical client, a medieval client, medical client, the West <laughs> me- a medieval client, Saudi Arabia, to which the US and Britain sell billions and billions of dollars worth of arms, is at present destroying Yemen, a country so poor that even in the best of times, over 50% of the children are malnourished. Look on YouTube and you'll see kinds of massive bombs, our bombs, good bombs, that the Saudis used against dirt poor villages and against weddings and funerals. Propaganda is most effective when our consent is engineered by those with a fine education, people from Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Columbia, and with careers on the BBC, The Guardian, The New York Times, or The Australian. These organisations are known as the liberal media. They present themselves as enlightened, progressive tribunes of the moral feeling of the day. 
they are anti-racist, mm-hmm. they are pro-feminist, mm-hmm. they are pro-GDBT, but they love war. When they speak up for feminism, they still at the same time report rapacious war that deny the rights of countless women, including the right to live. In 2011, Libya, then a modern state, was destroyed on the pretext that Gaddafi was about to commit genocide on his own people. This was news repeated again and again. No evidence. No evidence. It was a lie. In fact, Britain, Europe and the US wanted what they like to call regime change in Libya, the biggest oil producer in Africa. Gaddafi's influence on the continent and above all his independence were intolerable. So he was murdered in the, uh, with a knife in the back by fanatics, backed by America, Britain and France. Hillary Clinton, we might note, cheered this gruesome death for the camera, declaring, we came, we saw, he died. Mm. Crap poetry and horrible sentiments. According to its own records, NATO launched 9,700 strike sorties against Libya, of which more than a third were aimed at civilian targets and they included missiles with uranium warheads. It's not only in the Middle East that we had this blackout and propaganda by the, by the media. Um, the Ukraine is another media triumph. Respectable liberal newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Age, The Guardian, and mainstream broadcasters such as the BBC, NBC, CBS and CNN have played a critical role in conditioning their viewers to accept a new and dangerous Cold War. All have misrepresented events in the Ukraine as an evil act by Russia, when in fact the coup in the Ukraine in 2014 was the work of the United States, aided by Germany and NATO, back bringing back to power people who, were over, uh, people who wore swastikas on their arms. The inversion of reality is so persuasive that Washington's military intimidation of Russia is not news. The suppression of truth about the Ukraine is one of the most complete news blackouts we've ever had. The fascists who engineered the coup in Kiev are the same breed that backed the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1944. In fact, there's statues going up to Stephen Bandiera, who was a, a a fascist supporter of Germany during the Second World War. Of all the scares about the rise of fascist anti-Semitism in Europe, no leader ever mentions the fascists in the Ukraine. <laughs> except Putin. That's true, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Which, but of course, Putin doesn't count. In fact, all the, uh, the, the Zionists who are right on to anti-Semitism, mm. absolute silence about what's mm. convenient silence what's happening in the Ukraine. Many people in the Western media worked hard to present the ethnic Russian-speaking population of the Ukraine as outsiders in their own country, as agents of Moscow, almost never as Ukrainians who want a federation within Ukraine and as Ukrainian citizens resisting a foreign orchestrated coup against their elected government. And that's what took place. There is almost a joie de vivre of a a class reunion of warmongers. The drumbeaters of the Washington Post inciting war with Russia are the same editorial writers who published the lie that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. To most of us, the American presidential campaign is a freak show in which Donald Trump is the arch-villain. To the invisible government in Washington, 
the unpredictable Trump is an obstacle. And I think this has not been emphasised enough. Trump is an obstacle to America's designs for the 21st century. Mm. And the aim of that design for the 21st century is to maintain the dominance of the United States and to subject Russia and, if possible, to China, to American will. Well, Trump is almost what they used to call isolationist. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> right. The real, then exactly the problem. To the militarists in Washington, the real problem with Trump is that in his lucid moments, and he seems to have some, <laughs> he seems not to want a war with Russia. Uh. He actually wants to, heaven forbid, talk with the Russians, not to fight him. And he also said he wants to talk with the president of China. If only our politicians had this guts. In the first debate with Hillary Clinton, Trump promised not to be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into a conflict, a promise uh, Hillary Clinton hasn't made. And He's, Theresa May also said she'd use false strike. Right, did she? Mm. He said, uh, Trump said, I certainly would not do first strike. Once the nuclear alternative happens, it's over. That wasn't even reported. It mm. wasn't reported as news. Did he mean it? Well, who knows? He often contradicts himself. Mm. But what is clear is that Trump is considered a serious threat to the status quo maintained by the vast national security machine that runs the United States, regardless of who's in the White House. The CIA wants him beaten. The Pentagon wants him beaten. The media wants him beaten. Even his own party wants him beaten. He is a threat to the rulers of the world, unlike Clinton, who's left no doubt she's prepared to go to war with nuclear-armed Russia and China. Clinton has the form. She's got form, as she often boasts. In in fact, her record is proven. As a senator, she backed the bloodbath in Iraq. When she ran against Obama in 2008, she threatened to, quote, totally obliterate Iran. As Secretary of State, she concluded in the destruction of the governments in Libya and Honduras and set in train the baiting of China. She has now pledged to support a no-fly zone in Syria, which Mm. is a direct provocation of war with Russia. Mm -hmm. In fact, Clinton may well turn out to be the most dangerous president of the United States in our lifetime. That's saying something. Admittedly, a distinction for which competition is very fierce. (laughs) Without a shred of evidence, she has accused Russia of supporting Trump and hacking her emails. I mean, I find that just unbelievable. Uh, That is why threatening and silencing Julian Assange is so important. As the editor of WikiLeaks, Assange knows the truth. And what's more, he's not frightened to say it. Today, the, we, we've got the greatest build-up of American forces since World War II is underway. And this country is participating in that. Our defence budget is, is... I can't remember the actual figures, but it's going up. It's increased, increasing. It's increased. Yeah, well, we know... Bigger and bigger percentage. Bigger and bigger uh, percentage. And we know that we're spending just a mere $48 billion just mm. on submarines. Mm which will certainly stop the Chinese if they decide to invade. The greatest build-up of American forces since World War II is underway in the Caucasus, in Eastern Europe, on the border with Russia, and in Asia and Pacific, where China is the target. If the winner is Clinton, a Greek chorus of witless dumbos will celebrate her coronation as a great step forward to women. None will mention her victims, the women of Syria, the women of Iraq, the women of Libya, None will mention the civil defence drills being conducted in Russia. George Bush's press spokesman once called the media media complicit enablers. 
And there's a bit of euphemism there. In 1946, the Nuremberg Tribunal prosecutor said of the German media, before every major aggression, they initiated a press campaign calculated to weaken their victims and to prepare the German people psychologically for the attack. Mm -hmm. In the propaganda system, it was the daily press and the radio that were the most important weapons, and it still is. Right, that's all I wanted to, to say on that. A couple of words on the Brexit. So uh, this morning I just saw this. The High Court uh, has ruled that Parliament must decide on whether or not Britain remains or leaves. And Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, says that she'll invoke royal prerogative, which I think, you know, the Queen, right? So I think she'll tell the Queen, now ignore the High Court. I mean, I think there's similarities to what's happening in Australia with the same-sex marriage debate and, uh, you know, what's going on for a few months of whether we do it through uh, a plebiscite or whether we do it through Parliament. Well, I mean, in Britain, they agreed. Right, we'll do it through a referendum. Yeah, yeah. Right, and once the vote is decided, that's it. You can't if then, they decide their way. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't then. I mean, I would think you know, it doesn't seem democratic that you can then say, oh no, 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 the result was wrong. Have the result let's again. go through let's Parliament. Go <laughs> if that doesn't work, let's toss a coin for it. I yes. mean, really, you know. Yes, so, yes. Uh, well, so you know, and, and the interest. I mean, if they're going to speak about democracy and not just about preserving their capitalism and preserving what the establishment wants, yes, if. quite, quite.